Wax Lyrical pays deepest respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where Wax Lyrical is created. We recognize Redfern as a particular site of resistance and strength. Sovereignty was never ceded. Coming up in this episode, we have a long one from Sydney author Jack Cameron Stanton called Bobo's Seaplane. Strap yourself in as we whirl, twirl and tumble through the high rises of Sydney. It's going to be a ride. 11am on New Year's Day and Maurice, CEO of Fun City, was still sitting at Bobo's dining table. Fun City employees sat around the table at various stages of ecstasy and innovation. They had come for the midnight fireworks and stayed, not wanting to be rude by going home before Maurice. They reached across one another to pick at the hors d'oeuvres and lift champagne flutes to lips, and conversations about work had eroded into blabber dealing somehow with sex. Angelica from the Crystal Department was standing on the chair beside Bobo, offering a piece of Roquefort on cracker to a minor bird that had flown in through one of the windows and was now perched upon the chandelier, grasping with its yellow feet. Before passing out, Bobo had been scheming how to get more alcohol for the party. All the bottleos were closed on New Year's Day, but the party raged on, on whatever fuel was left. Since his nap, Maurice's face had changed. The red veins in his nose seemed to be pushing against the skin, his nose itself swollen into a grotesquely large shape. His hands rested upon his belly, feeling the tip of his tie, and then running his fingers all the way down it. There was not a spot of liquor on his shirt. Bobo, are you paying attention? Maurice beckoned him with a many-ringed finger, and Bobo made his way over, crouching beside him. How are you, sir? Everything in order? We after another filet mignon? Don't trouble yourself, Maurice said, waving a hand dismissively. He raised his glass and shook it side to side. We could do with another glass of bubbles. Bobo breathed heavily. He went to grab another bottle of Moe keeping a distant smile on his face while treading carefully through beer cans and wine bottles and the occasional passed out body, trying to remember what they were meant to celebrate today. Yes, of course it was New Year's Day, he remembered that much. But wasn't there something else he was supposed to remember? Was it Meatball's birthday? The anniversary of Cassandra's divorce? Did someone birth a bambino? He racked his brains. What did it matter anyway, once he knew to do of ceremony? People were still drinking and carrying on, prepared to see it to the very end, and now his smile felt more and more sincere. It moulded itself onto his face. And when he returned to the kitchen, he could not help noticing something peculiar in his cousin Roland's expression, 
a type of suppressed dismay in his face and figure. What's the matter? Bobo asked, selecting a prosciutto-wrapped rock melon off a platter. Roland was a tall fella with curly hair and a beard he had not shaved since his father died. Roland took off his hat and placed it in a puddle of beer beside the sink. Prawn heads, oyster shells and skewers of meat had damned the kitchen to the presence of flies. How come you're moping around, all morose? Bobo asked. Although you've never been one for decorum, Roland said, I expect a little goddamn respect when it comes to the anniversary of my father's death. Oh, bugger, mate. I'm sorry. You know how I forget these things. He walked right up to Roland and plucked the champagne flute from his hands. Drink to his memory? We're dry, Roland said, and to demonstrate this, he inverted a bottle of Moe. Some golden liquid fell onto the kitchen tiles. Hey, man, easy on the marble. Bobo grabbed the bottle from his cousin. A crash sounded from outside the room, and both men turned toward the noise. Bobo went over to peer through the doorway. Mid-morning sunlight had finally arrived, and now he could see all the destruction to his beloved home. At the table, partygoers leant forward with their arms between their knees, or swayed back and forth on their chair legs. Down the corridor, in the sunroom, people lay among the beanbags with hands all over each other. A woman he didn't recognise reached for a snap-lock bag resting on the sideboard, alongside bottles and ashtrays. Slowly, she reached inside the bag and stuffed its contents into her mouth. They made eye contact. Embarrassed, he tried to pretend as though they hadn't by scanning the dining room again. On the floor were shards of glass. Jesus, he muttered, having enforced a no-shoes policy on his guests when they had all passed through his door on New Year's Eve, leaving behind a mecca of thongs and high heels outside his front door. But even though he thought to begin collecting the glass, the more he searched the room, the more glass he saw, and soon the task seemed quite impossible. He closed it softly behind him. I don't think Maurice will be pleased, Bobo said, slapping his palms on the island bench. This could be the end. But it's not even midday, Roland said. I know, Bobo said, adopting his cousin's morose expression as he slumped upon the island bench. If we don't get alcohol soon, he said, we're fucked. Well, I have some coke. Roland said, yeah, I suppose that'll do, but I'm not worried about us, man, it's them. Bobo thrust a finger accusatorily at the door, and him. What about that uh, bottle shop near the service station, Roland asked. Closed, oh, what to do, he muttered, shaking his head. He peered outside the kitchen window to the harbour, where his seaplane bobbed beside the jetty. It was a small plane, with a red body and chrome nose, and a propeller that spun lazily in the ocean breeze. They opened the kitchen door and made their way through the partygoers roaring around the dining table. Bobo placed the board in front of Maurice and Roland, offered him the rolled up note. A backpacker who worked for him, was it Federic, Fernando, Francesco, launched out of his chair and raised his hand for a high five. Just do the drugs, Bobo said, leaving him hanging. He walked over to Roland, who was holding the rolled up note for Maurice while he helped himself. Sir? Ah, Bobo! Sit down here beside me, Maurice said. He lifted his hairy arm, which was dangling on the chair beside him. Roland's been filling me in on our predicament. Bobo spoke while sitting. Do not fear, I'm a man who can keep everything under. Cigarette smoke exploded from Maurice's mouth. He laughed over the music. I have to say, I'm feeling like it wouldn't be a bad time for a change of scenery, don't you think? That plane you got outside, don't suppose you can fly it? Bobo pushed his shoulders back and lifted his chest. It's how I've been getting to work for the past few months. I thought you may have noticed. I tend to fly right by your window. 
Oh, yes, of course, that's you? His eyes shone. I just love planes. Well, Bobo said quite proudly. I bought the thing because, well, couldn't fit another car in the garage. Again, Maurice laughed. Bobo, you're all right. He dipped his head and finished whatever Coke was left on the cheese board. I'll let you in on a little secret. The two men leant close together and Maurice whispered in his ear. His arm had fallen off the back of the chair and was now resting on Bobo's shoulder. After he whispered the instructions, Maurice gave Bobo a phone number to text. He knew dealers who sold alcohol and imported cigarettes for late-night partiers by roaming from location to location and texting an exclusive list of buyers their whereabouts. So Bobo texted a number and awaited the right coordinates. And right away the phone pinged, still in his hands. The message read, G'day, Peter Johnson from Wisconsin's VIPs. Service on New Year's Day held at Wendy Whiteley Secret Garden inside the train tunnel. No FBOS, cash only, gone by six. Bobo thumped him on the back. Sir, I'm going upstairs to find the keys. Meet me at the jetty in three minutes. Bobo closed the back door, he stepped on a Spitfire caterpillar. Its body exploded beneath his boots. Before today, he had noticed the caterpillars eating through his hydrangeas that lined the backyard, but not in the numbers he saw now. It must have been the rain, he thought, observing the swarm of other caterpillars wriggling along the sandstone walls and covering the steps down toward the jetty. After several seconds, he lifted his foot and examined the dead one beneath his shoe, and immediately the smell of eucalyptus hit his nose. If he didn't kill them soon, they would morph into wasps. He had read it on Wikipedia after googling whether he need bother dealing with the infestation, and the article had almost convinced him to ring an exterminator until he saw that the wasps didn't grow stingers. They were just big, bloody, ugly flies. He hopscotched between the bugs toward the jetty. Along the hull of his seaplane, scrolled in red spray paint, were the words, too many humans, not enough souls. Bobo leant over and dabbed his index on the paint. It's barely dry. The letters were rushed and all different sizes. Maurice, wearing a big sun hat pulled down low, his hands deep in his pockets, was pacing up and down the wharf, turning just before he reached the edge on either side and creating smoke trails behind him. As Bobo approached, it seemed that Maurice had seen, but pretended not to have seen him. You all ready? Bobo asked. He started to unravel the thick rope that tied the seaplane to a bollard, taking longer than usual to untie the knot that he himself had just tied three days ago. We gotta be quick, he said, getting to his feet. They sat in the cockpit. Before long, Bobo had the seaplane turned so its nose faced toward the city. He worked the dials and knobs with the confidence he'd gained from years of flight simulation games he'd played on his computer, 
and feeling that familiar rush of excitement pierce through his drunkenness, he grabbed the joystick and the amphibious aircraft began skimming the water's surface. Maurice was trying to say something, so Bobo pointed to the microphones attached to their headsets. He retrieved the headset from the floor and fixed the mufflers over his ears. How do you land this thing in such a short and narrow body of water? Maurice asked. The cockpit accentuated the density of his limbs, and to be comfortable he had an arm pressed against the window, the other in his lap, toying with an unlit cigarette. Get into, into the air is the easy part, Bobo said. It's coming home that's a fucking nightmare. They lurched into the sky, the engine heaved. Maurice shouted again through the microphone. What? Bobo asked. I said, I'm guessing it's not technically legal what we're doing. Oh, not at all, Bobo said. He chugged the seaplane over the harbour bridge, dispersing a loft of pigeons from the steel arc summit. Take me for a spin first, Maurice said, before we settle down at Peter Johnson's. Oh, but we are supposed to be getting... We just love the view from up here, Maurice said. Just spectacular. And Bobo beamed. At his master's beckon, he flew the plane deeper into the city, between Seidler's MLC building and the center point tower. Passing the tower's observation deck, Bobo dipped his wings and circled around it, while Maurice waved back at the tourists, his face puffing and ravaged against the window glass. Bobo did another loop around the harbor. This truly is a gourmet experience, Maurice said, leaning into the chair and lighting his cigarette. The landmasses disintegrated into heads and lookouts. A candy-striped lighthouse tucked behind bottle and glass point watched over a military base. Retired navy ships docked near Potts Point were adorned with streamers and sailors still partying on board. He thought about alighting the seaplane beside the HMS whatever, but instead he rolled onwards toward the open expanse of ocean. From this height, Sydney appeared to be Pangaea in miniature. Bobo gave the joystick a confident nudge. He started to reach behind him, sure that he'd left a couple bottles of Pinot Noir back there for such an occasion. The view deserved a toast, after all. I've got it, Maurice said, holding the cigarette in his lips to free his hands. So Bobo nodded and swiveled to face the back of the plane. His fingers clutched at a safety harness, a small refrigerator, a tangled parachute. And all the while, his vision began clouding over with these dark, fuzzy spots. And finding it harder to see, he reached to take off his speed dealers, but they weren't there. He was vaguely aware of Maurice's voice. What do I do? Bobo, hey? How do I straighten this thing? But Bobo was already losing consciousness, and the last thing he recalled seeing was outside the right-hand window, a seaplane wing pointing at the sun.
Hours later, Bobo woke floating on a blow-up flamingo in a swimming pool. The vinyl was cool against his back, and his bold forehead prickled with sun rays, stretching dry skin across his face. He detached his arms from the vinyl for some effort, and scooped water onto his face. Using hands to paddle, he swam to the pool's edge and dragged himself out of the water. He lay on his back, staring at the sun, until a woman peered over him, obscuring the light. Jesus, she said, you look like somebody who sleeps upside down in a cupboard. Bobo spat the remaining water from his lungs, felt it dribble down his cheek and into his ears. Please, he whispered, it's so bright. Buzzy, she said, would you kindly fetch the Count Sunnies? A dog appeared beside him, holding his speed dealers in its slobbering mouth. Bobo jammed the sunnies on and assessed his surroundings. Covering the water was a carpet of agapantha flowers, which had been decapitated from the rest of the plants, which were in beds near the pool. That's enough, Buzzy, the woman said. Hearing its master, the dog leapt into the water and paddled with its front paws toward the closest clump of agapantha petals. It reached the flowers, kept swimming, and opened its mouth, swallowing them like a baleen whale eats krill. On the breeze was the smell of bushfire and seafood being barbecued. The woman clicked her fingers. Ready to explain yourself, mate? Bobo sat up and shrugged meekly. Last thing I remember was probably oh, up there somewhere, he said, stabbing a finger skyward. Remembering his desire at that moment to refuel the party before its last fires perished, that since all the bottle shops were closed, he would need to make his way somehow to Peter Johnson from Wisconsin's VIPs to buy contraband liquor. Bobo patted his pockets for anything of use. All three iPhones, buried in various pockets of his velvet maroon dinner jacket, were miraculously intact. He placed them beside him. <laughs> Why do you need three? he said. Bobo stared at her through the tint of his sunnies. He didn't search out the stranger's face, but knew by now that it was friendly and sharp and skin-tight, shadowed under a wavy, broad-brimmed black hat that obscured the colour of her eyes. He noticed how his vision blurred in and out of focus, as though the outside world was breathing with lungs. Was it the Dexys or the psilocybin or cocaine or the good old grog that had caused him to zonk out? And where the fuck was Maurice in the seaplane? Uh, have we met before? He asked, rising shakily to his feet. Doubt it, she said. But we'll be getting to know each other much better, considering I'll be getting you to pay for the damage you've just done, preferably immediately. Behind the woman, Bobo saw where his seaplane had collided with the side of her house. Its nose had crumpled into its body. The hull on the side facing him was angled inwards, conceding to the brick. Her red, green and yellow lids had been flung away from the bins, and rubbish spewed from the torn bags along the tile path that cut through the backyard toward the pool. I see, he said. Well, you seem agreeable enough, Mrs. Cordelia, she said. Ah, unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Cordelia, I hope we can reach some agreement here. She didn't respond. Have you seen, uh, Maurice? Who? Ah, uh, was there anybody with me? Uh, not that I saw. I heard the plane crash, came out here and find you snoozing in my fucking pool. Do you want me to go check the rubble? No, 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 look, I'll just text him, I'm sure it's all fine. I'm a man who can keep everything under... Um, so, the money? Cordelia asked. 
She was wearing a green jumpsuit with crystal shades of red, blue and yellow running down it. Okay, listen, I have in here... He searched his pockets for his wallet and then inspected the notes folded inside. 450 bucks, sister. I can give you this now and the rest we can sort out upon my return home. You see, I'm dreadfully apologetic about the uh, intrusion, but you see, if I'm lucky, there's a party at my place in dire need of... She cut him off. Am I right in thinking you intend on bribing a lift out of me back to your home after you've just crashed and destroyed mine? Bobo flapped his hands to either side and shrugged from chin to ear. drove through the city, away from her house, which, when they had turned onto the freeway, Bobo realised was somewhere in Mascot. He had given Cordelia 450 bucks for the ride, and explained they must make a short detour at Lavender Bay to collect some things, but he had agreed to pay her $5,000 just to put this all behind them. Pretending nothing unusual had just happened, Bobo sat in the back beside Buzzy, the French bulldog. He hung his dinner jacket over the front passenger seat. 
With a slow rhythm, water dropped off the dangling sleeves and disappeared into the darkening carpet. As she had been doing at every red light, at which they found themselves at that moment, on City Road near the Seymour Centre, Cordelia turned to face Bobo, crinkling her nose in what he believed was either disdain or nervous habit. How much longer is this going to take? he asked. I can't control the traffic, you know. Whatever, mate. Bobo swatted his hand in front of her face. Do you think I really spend time here, in Chinatown, near all these university chumps? Then more to himself, hardly make it over this side of the bridge anyway. Why's that? she asked. She signalled to a homeless fellow with a windscreen wiper and Mount Franklin. There you fucking go. I don't even need to say a thing. He closed his eyes and thought at least his jacket would dry. Up until then, the dog's husky panting had been invisible to him, part of the car's atmosphere. But when the homeless guy approached the windscreen and dragged that wiper diagonally, it released a prolonged squeak like chalkboard fingernails, and the bulldog barked and leapt over the armrest and into Cordelia's lap. The homeless guy continued wiping away the foamy water until it disappeared. Then once he had finished the job, knocked on the driver window, his knuckles a thin piece of glass away from the bulldog's teeth. Bobo straightened his neck and braced his shoulders, while Cordelia fiddled for coins behind the gearbox. Shouldn't do that, Bobo said, responding to the sound of coins collecting in her palm. You'll poison their minds. When she rolled the window down, Buzzy jammed his jaw at the crack, bashing his head against the glass. I'm sorry, the guy said. Ran out of me soap, but I did my best. Did me best for you. Bobo opened an eye. The windscreen was streaked with gum tree leaves and dirt trails showing where the wiper had gone. He laughed, watching Cordelia toss the coins in the guy's hand while restraining Buzzy by the collar with the other. The guy bowed, then shuffled past Bobo's window toward the car behind them. He took a breath. She meant trouble. He thought that maybe there would be some cocaine left in his jacket, so he ruffled its pockets but only found his iPhones. A little bit of human decency isn't poison, Cordelia said, winding up the window. Please, he said. Soon we will all be gone. Space dust. You shouldn't give people hope. I've started to see myself as a walking human alarm clock. You know, tick-tock. I hope you don't plan on being this depressing the whole time, she said. It's not depressing. It's fatalistic. At the next intersection, they stopped by the Lansdowne Hotel. You wake back there? Mm. He had, in fact, been dozing. She pointed at the Lansdowne. Read that sign. What does it make you think? He saw on the street corner behind the head of smokers a sign backlit with white neon and capital black letters spelling out Live! Chili Mud Crab, 7.30pm. Through the rearview mirror, she caught Bobo's stare. It's from last night, she said. It's my band, the Chili Mud Crabs. Oh yeah, and? She released a puff of air. <sighs> Same as always. People showed up with orange bibs and crab crackers. But Bobo wasn't listening. Rather, he was staring out the window at the spires of the university and remembered, only now, Maurice in the seaplane and did not think to check the debris at Cordelia's house for any signs of the man's fate. Everything had gone south since he woke up on that freaking flamingo. What would he tell Aunt Tiny Teeth about the sudden disappearance? Oh, God. He mustn't lose his cool now. He had people depending on him. And if he were to flip out, then this Cordelia lady would be sure to eject him from the vehicle. He pictured Maurice. He pictured his office in Fun City's Sydney headquarters, the new one he had just been promised, which was on the same floor as him, just seven doors down and around the corner, and then 11 more further along the hallway somewhere.
Moments later, with these thoughts still circling his mind, they approached the harbour bridge. He wound down the window and the sounds from the street beneath scampered into the car. A ferry leaving Circular Quay blew its foghorn. On the harbour bridge, a train clopped along the bridge's antipodes, carriage after carriage. From above, birds flew in strange patterns around the Australian and Aboriginal flag. Bobo reached for his phones, which Buzzy was sleeping on top of beside him in the back seat. Jesus, Mary and fucking Joseph! His scream woke the dog, who barked that flicked his fat head back and forth, searching the car. Meanwhile, Cordelia had swerved into a lane of oncoming traffic, then manoeuvred back into her own. She slammed both fists on the wheel. Don't frighten me like that. But now they're not working, Bobo moaned. They were fine when I woke up on that bloody flamingo. Must have been that fat pooch of yours. They balanced all three iPhones on top of one another. Uh, I doubt the sleeping dog can destroy phones with psychic will alone, she said, exiting the freeway. Beside him, the dog trampled on the towel laying across the leather seat. It slobbered some more. Bobo rolled down the window and threw out the iPhones. Stuck to the back of the last phone was an agapanther flower pressed sleep, and Buzzy leapt across Bobo's lap, pouncing through the window of the moving car. For a moment, they drove ahead as normal. He gasped, but kept his eyes fixed on the road. Surely she had seen what just happened. They approached a roundabout, and rather than taking the exit that led to Wendy Whiteley's garden, Cordelia veered the car onto the concrete circle and hit the brakes. She flung open the car door, unclipping her seatbelt, flinging it with such violence that it crashed against her window and then hurried towards the freeway exit. Bobo pulled at his own door, but it was child-locked. Fuck. He had to climb over the armrest and siphon his body at an uncomfortable angle. Cordelia sprawled on top of her bleeding full moon of fur and bulldog upon the road. He stared back and then ran towards Wendy Whiteley's garden down a stairwell that led to the northern bank of Sydney Harbour. stepped off the stairs, he saw a gap in the mesh fence. A few people, mostly sober looking, stood on either side of the train tracks leading into the tunnel. They watched him approach, so he tried to straighten his shoulders while walking toward them and reached for the centre button on his dinner jacket, only to realise he wasn't wearing it, that he must have left it hanging in Cordelia's car. Ah well, he thought, that's a pretty good tip. He was walking along a zigzag path, past variegated bamboo, a sheer cliff of sandstone, then over a wooden bridge beside a fig tree nibbled by bats. A fella stood on the other side of the mesh. The 
had nothing to say, so he crouched and passed through, then made his way to the shore. While he approached, he concentrated on his breathing, tried to keep it slow and sensible. By the water was Maurice, resting his feet on a tin dinghy, a cap covering his face. Beside him were two bottles of Moe, thrust upright into the sand. Maurice, I'm here. I, he gulped in some air. Look, don't, are you all that? Oh, it doesn't matter. Maurice smiled. His shoes were off, his tie loose and top button undone. He had rolled the sleeves all the way to his biceps. I've quite enjoyed waiting for you by the water. Exactly what I needed, old boy. A change of scenery. How did you... You don't remember? Maurice put a hand on his shoulder. Happens to the best of us. Look, are you ready? Peter Johnson said he's closing the stall soon when I bought these off him, he said, nodding at the champagne. Both men strolled into the tunnel's mouth, seeing lights set up from the ceiling, hovering above stalls of New Year's Day contraband, liquor bottles beside imported cartons of cigarettes, a red lantern dangling above a couple of Chinese women who were crouching against a tunnel wall beside their stalls selling boxes of firecrackers. They walked over the train tracks, from between which grew onion weeds. Bobo did not look at Maurice, but his mere presence was heartening. You got this one, right? I'm out of cash, Maurice said. God damn! Bobo remembered both his wallets were inside his jacket and that he'd given all his cash to Cordelia anyway. Come to think of it, there was more than his money and banking cards inside those wallets. If that Cordelia lady was deft enough, she would be sure to find his driver's license, business cards, fitness first membership, plenty of traces back home. Ah, uh, sir, I think we have to get home right away, Bobo said quietly. I fear I may not be able to get out of this one. Maurice looked at him. Do you have money, or what? Bobo looked over his shoulder at the Whiteley Garden, suddenly unable to shake the feeling of being watched. Looming above the plants were four rickety terrace houses side by side. He turned around and ran toward the dinghy, and along the way his foot caught on a raised train track. His speed dealers flew off his face and the lenses popped out. Not long after, Bobo and Maurice were sitting in the dinghy, facing each other, their knees knocking while they rode towards Bobo's Longerville home with an oar of peace. They had navigated past Cockatoo Island, and between the diametric points that always appeared to him as personal gateways to his abode, and at long last, he saw his glass castle. From the balcony leaked the sounds of the Macarena, and a swell of activity became more crystalline as they rode closer. People emerged from the house's myriad cocoons, forming lines by joining themselves hands to hips and beginning their synchronised dance. They were close enough now to see partygoers had the same peculiar grin on their face, each believing themselves to be the centre of attention. Bobo searched their faces, but could not see any of them that he recognised on the multi-level balcony from which smoke rose from his barbecues. They pulled the boat out of the water. While docking it, Bobo saw approaching a cruiser with blue, red and white lights flashing, its sirens screaming across the sky. They got out of the water and Maurice dropped the rope and put a hand on Bobo's shoulder. They here for us? he asked. Bobo winced, staring through his lensless sunnies that had fallen down to his nose. Nah, 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 it's not. Don't fear, no fretting, my friend, he said, wiping sweat off his bold sculpt. You see, the seaplane. Well, I did not land majestically. Maurice frowned. 
You know Fun City can't be involved in any of this. Oh, no, no, please, senor, it won't come to that, he said. But already Maurice was hurrying up toward the house, pumping two steps at a time. Bobo raised his voice to be heard above the siren and the wind. You've entrusted me with a great responsibility, sir, and I won't forget that. You know why? You know why, sir? Because I'm a man. I'm a man who can keep everything under. was Bobo Seaplane by Jack Cameron Stanton. You're on Wax Lyric on FBI Radio. We'll be back again in a fortnight. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe.